Well, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. iFormerX is an online community of practice for ambulatory care and community pharmacists where we explore the evidence that informs drug therapy and practice management decisions. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast. And if you're a health professional or a student enrolled in a professional degree program, you can join iFormerX. Membership is free to become a member. Just visit our website, iformerx.org, and click on the join or sign in link in the upper right hand of the navigation bar. And if you like this podcast, please be sure to rate us and leave a comment using your favorite podcasting app. Now, today we're going to be talking about the treatment of diabetes, and we have 11 different classes of medications and countless products to treat hyperglycemia in patients with type 2 diabetes. Most patients require at least two different classes to achieve their glycemic goal, and many patients require three. What remains unclear is which combination of drugs is optimal, which combination has the greatest glucose-lowering effect, and which combinations have a sustained glucose-lowering effect over time. Some years ago, when sulfonylureas were widely used, it was, it was well known that their glycemic lowering effects waned over time, perhaps due to tachyphylaxis or beta cell burnout, or perhaps due to the natural decline in beta cell mass that occurs with disease progression. Other classes of drugs, like the TZDs, were touted to preserve beta cell function. So while a drug might lower blood glucose significantly, it might not have a sustained effect. And while the blood glucose lowering effect of a drug is important, it's the long-term outcomes that we really care about the most. So when the grade or glycemia reduction approaches in type 2 diabetes, a comparative effectiveness study was released late last year. I read the study with anticipation that it might help address some key clinical questions. And that's why I reached out to one of my dear colleagues, Dr. Jennifer Trio, to give her take on the study. Jen and I are co-authors of the diabetes chapter in the DePiro's Pharmacotherapy textbook. And Jen graciously agreed, along with Dr. Caitlin Courier, to write a commentary about the GRADE study and to participate in this podcast. So Jen is a professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Colorado Skagg School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences and a clinical pharmacy specialist in the UC Health Diabetes and Endocrine Clinic. And Dr. Courier just completed her PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice residency at UC Health and will be joining, or at the time that this is released, will have just joined a team of clinical pharmacists who are practicing at Associates and Family Medicine of Fort Collins, Colorado. So congratulations to Caitlin. So Jenna, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast. And Caitlin, it's awesome to have you here as first-time contributor. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Stuart. It's great to be here. And thanks for the invitation to, to join as a first-time contributor. I'm really excited to talk about this study. So Jenna, I, I'm hoping you can get our discussion started today by providing some context why the GRADE study was conducted and what the important clinical questions it was intended to address. Stuart, you know how I love to contextualize things. 
Um, so the GRADE study was conducted to answer the question about second-line therapy for type 2 diabetes, really which medication when added to metformin would produce the best glucose-lowering results. The GRADE study protocol was finalized in 2012, and recruitment began in 2013. It took several years to complete the study, and it was published last year in 2022. So for anyone who's been in the diabetes space at all, you know how much has changed over this past decade. Thinking back to 2012, the primary investigator for the study happened to also be the primary author of the American Diabetes Association's consensus algorithm at the time. And back then, the question of which medication to add to metformin was really a significantly debated topic. So metformin had risen to the first-line therapy, a lot to do with the UK PDS trial, but the consensus algorithm was not particularly helpful in differentiating between second-line options. It merely included basal insulin and sulfonylureas as what they called well-validated options, and then GLP-1 receptor agonists and pioglitazone as less well-validated options. It didn't really specify which one was preferred. And at the time, the approach to diabetes management was very glucocentric, but head-to-head trials comparing the glucose-lowering effects were kind of sparse. So in 2012, when the protocol was written, commonly available agents that we used for glucose-lowering included basal insulins, sulfonylureas, pioglitazone, and the GLP-1 receptor agonists, liraglutide and exenatide. And then we had some DPP-4 inhibitors on the market as well. So these were really the agents that they were looking at to study in the GRADE trial to see which one, when added to metformin, would give us the best glucose-lowering response. So in terms of context, I think the most important context to consider with the GRADE trial is that it was done before SGLT2 inhibitors were approved, before the once-weekly GLP-1 RAs were approved, and before positive cardiovascular outcome trials or kidney trials or heart failure trials were published. Of course, now the algorithm focuses very heavily on comorbidities to help us decide which agent to use, and now the guidelines don't even recommend metformin anymore as the clear first-line agent. So that's the real context of this trial is the time that has passed and the studies that have been published during its inception to its publication. I think with all of that said, though, it still does have value in shedding some light on the comparative effects in terms of glucose lowering for four different classes of medications. So, Caitlin, the, the GRADE study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September of 2022. The official title of the paper is Glycemia Reduction in Type 2 Diabetes, Glycemia Outcomes. And we provide a link to the original paper on our website. But, Caitlin, can you give us a summary of the study methods and some of the key results? So the GRADE study ultimately enrolled a little over 5,000 patients who were followed over a five-year period. Patients were eligible for inclusion in the GRADE study if they had received a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes after age 30, had a known duration of diabetes of less than 10 years, and had received a daily metformin dose of at least 500 milligrams for six months prior to their enrollment in the trial, 
without the use of other diabetes medications. Exclusion criteria were numerous and included a diagnosis of heart failure or a serum creatinine of 1.4 milligrams per deciliter or greater for women or 1.5 or greater for men. At the start of the study, patients underwent what they referred to as a run-in period of 6 to 14 weeks, during which the metformin dose was titrated to a minimum dose of 1,000 milligrams and a max of 2,000 milligrams. At the end of this run-in period, patients were eligible for inclusion in the trial if they had an A1C of 6.8 to 8.5%. From there, the participants were then assigned to one of the four other diabetes medications in addition to metformin. These were U100 insulin glargine, liraglutide, citagliptin, or glimepiride. These medications were titrated up to maximal FDA-approved dosages, depending on the tolerability of the medications by participants. It's worth noting that non-study diabetes drugs could be prescribed by providers according to their own standards of practice. And the primary metabolic outcome in GRADE was attainment of an A1C of 7% or greater on metformin and the randomized study drug. So that's kind of like the study design background. Moving into results, as far as demographics go, the majority of participants in GRADE were white, male, and 60 years of age or older. The average baseline A1C was 7.5%. Most patients had a mean duration of diabetes of about four years, and approximately 6.5% of patients had a history of ASCVD. Ultimately, a little over 70% of the participants in GRADE progressed to the primary metabolic outcome during the follow-up period. The rates with insulin glargine and liraglutide were slightly less than 70%, And these rates were lower compared to the rates with glimepiride and citagliptin, which were over 70%. Citagliptin had less A1C lowering and durability over time compared to the other agents. The time to the primary metabolic outcome was about 700 days for citagliptin patients compared to over 800 days in the other treatment groups. Overall, glimepiride and glargine had a higher incidence of adverse effects. As would be expected, liraglutide demonstrated a higher rate of GI side effects, so over 40% of participants, and glargine had a higher incidence of weight gain, about 10% of participants, compared to the other agents. Overall, in grade, severe hypoglycemia incidence was relatively low, but the highest incidence did occur in the glimepiride group at slightly over 2% of participants experiencing severe hypoglycemia. Glimepiride participants also had the highest use of non-trial medications, as well as discontinuation of assigned trial treatment, so close to 35%. Well, on the surface, the the GRADE study appears to be a well-designed and executed clinical trial, but every study has caveats and shortcomings because there are trade-offs the investigators invariably need to make when designing a study. And while the the GRADE study enrolled slightly more than 5,000 participants, it had four different treatment arms. And so I'm wondering if the study was underpowered to detect clinically meaningful differences between the groups. Do you share this concern? And are there any potential sources of bias or confounders that might have impacted the results? Yeah, I think those are some great questions to consider in the context of the GRADE study. I think with regards to the power of the study, we would expect that the trial was powered well enough to detect differences in the metabolic outcomes of A1C and weight changes. 5,000 participants over a five-year follow-up period is definitely more than what we would typically see in most phase three studies that focus on metabolic outcomes. But I think your question is interesting because you asked about clinically meaningful outcomes. 
as I mentioned previously, the primary outcome was metabolic failure, which was defined as the attainment of an A1C of 7% or greater while receiving metformin and the randomized study drug. Given the objective nature of the primary outcome and the fairly stringent inclusion and exclusion criteria that were present in this study, overall, we feel that the potential for bias or confounders within the study is probably fairly limited. But it's really worth noting that the study did have some major limitations that we really need to address. For one, the trial was probably not powered enough to see differences in non-metabolic outcomes, like major adverse cardiovascular events. A second article by the same authors that analyzed the macro and microvascular implications of GRADE failed to find a difference in rates of hospitalization from heart failure, in death from cardiovascular causes, or in development of heart failure or dyslipidemia between the intervention groups. This is likely both due to the study being underpowered to assess these outcomes, as well as the follow-up period of five years simply not being sufficient enough to assess for these cardiovascular-related outcomes. And outside of the design limitations that Caitlin mentioned, I think there are a few additional limitations that are very important to mention. An obvious one is that the study did not include some of the preferred agents that we use today. The SGLT2 inhibitors were not included in the GRADE study because they had not yet been approved at the time that the study protocol was written. And newer, perhaps better, once weekly GLP-1 receptor agonists such as semaglutide and dulaglutide were also not included. Another important weakness of the study is the patient population. The authors tout the fact that they purposefully enrolled a diverse population that was representative of the type 2 population. However, they only included participants with an A1C of 6.8 to 8.5%. They excluded folks that had chronic kidney disease or heart failure, and only 6.6% had cardiovascular disease. So the grade study population, while perhaps racially and ethnically diverse, is not that representative of the real-world type 2 diabetes population that you and I see every day. In fact, there was a real-world study that tried to emulate the results of the grade in a large real-world population, and they found that only about 20% of those patients fit the inclusion-exclusion criteria of the grade study. So I'm left wondering whether the grade study should influence clinical practice. What important clinical questions did this study actually answer? And should the results change drug therapy decisions or our approach to patients with type 2 diabetes in, in any way? Yeah, well, I would certainly say that the GRADE study provided further evidence for the strong glucose-lowering abilities of the GLP-1 receptor agonists and basal insulin. And this does align with the most recent recommendations from the ADA 2023 Standards of Care Guidelines. Along those same lines, I think that GRADE also validates that sulfonylureas and DPP-4 inhibitors should generally not be preferred agents for type 2 diabetes treatment, as they have pretty limited glucose-lowering efficacy, and when we're looking at sulfonylureas in particular, higher rates of hypoglycemia. I think that it's important to note that since the time of the GRADE studies protocol development, the standards of care have really transitioned from a glucose-centric diabetes management style to one that's much more tailored to the consideration of patient comorbidities and other patient-specific factors. 
Given that the primary focus of the grade study was metabolic outcomes and not micro and macrovascular outcomes, I think the results of the trial are unfortunately most likely limited to patients without significant comorbidities that would otherwise influence our pharmacotherapy selection. And I'll just add to that, you know, one of the key points that we keep coming back to here at CU when we're talking about this study is that the majority of participants in the grade study regardless of which treatment option they were randomized to, did not maintain glucose control over the course of the study, which was about five years. So I think it really reminds us that achieving and maintaining glucose control over the long haul remains really challenging, and that our current stepwise approach, which many folks also call treat-to-fail, where you add one agent at a time and wait for the A1C to increase, just doesn't seem highly successful. Glucose control remains important at decreasing microvascular outcomes, and we need to find better strategies to achieve and maintain targets over a course of a person's lifetime. Well, Caitlin, Jen, many thanks for reviewing the GRADE study and providing a a critical review of this paper in your written commentary and participating in today's podcast. The GRADE study certainly affirms previous data regarding the efficacy in terms of glucose lowering and the safety of four commonly used classes of medications when added to metformin. But in 2023, I'm not sure the results will influence practice very much as we now use many other classes commonly. But perhaps you have a different take on the GRADE study. And if you do, go ahead and leave a comment. Head on over to iformerx.org and sign in. Remember, only members of iformerx can post comments and use the interactive features. Now, this podcast and the written commentary will be a part of the Literature Evaluation and Evidence-Based Practice Series through the American Pharmacists Association, which is part of their board prep and recertification program. So you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit If you want to do so, just click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary on our website. And lastly, I'd like to thank Haley Blackburn at the University of Montana for being a member of iFormerX and promoting environmentally sustainable practices in healthcare. Haley is one of the founding members of Rx for Climate, a web-based community intended to build awareness about planetary health. A few years ago, Haley and her team opened my eyes to the negative impact that climate change is having on human health and how healthcare delivery systems, including pharmacies, are contributing to the problem. Rx for Climate promotes environmental stewardship and pharmacy practice and provides a forum for talking about and sharing challenges and best practices. So thank you, Haley, for the great work that you and the leaders of Rx for Climate doing to build awareness and change the way we provide care. And so I encourage everyone to visit rxforclimate.org today and join this growing community of concerned health professionals who are addressing planetary health. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor in chief of iFormerX, signing off. <music>